0: We're in 1st Samuel chapter 1 again today if you turn there to verse 21 we're going to read the first many verses there through the rest of the chapter in chapter 1 and then move on to chapter 2 a little bit later in the afternoon but let's stand as we read God's word 1st Samuel 1 verse 21 The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray. Father, you are a mighty God. You are true to your word. You are faithful throughout all generations. And Lord, as we read your word that has been established for centuries, millennia, we pray that we would give it respect today, that we would listen closely to what especially you say in your word, and let it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began a study of First Samuel, and these events took place in Israel at the end of the time of the judges. And if you remember, it was a dark time in which the people did whatever they thought was right but the emphasis is always in judges in their own eyes so according to their own opinions and ultimately as we read judges and it gets worse and worse according to their desires and there was widespread idolatry there was conflict between tribes and much that displeased the lord and we saw how god through moses during the exodus had promised israel that should the people be faithful and serve only the Lord, then there would be not a barren woman or animal in the land. The land, in fact, and its people would be blessed. But should Israel turn from the Lord, then the consequence would be the opposite. It would be barren families, barren livestock, barren land. And understanding that situation, we then looked at a family that was affected by barrenness. Particularly this godly woman Hannah and her plea to the Lord for a child. But it was more than a plea, if, if, as you remember. It was a vow that if God should bless her, if He should bless her, then she would in turn give that child back to the Lord. And of course, we, we know the end of the story already. The child would be Samuel, a priest, a prophet, the last judge of Israel, and the one who would establish David as king. And I suggested to you last week that Hannah in a way represented barren Israel who had turned from God. In fact, we saw how Hannah's prayer echoed the prayers of the Israelites during the Exodus when they were slaves in Egypt. The Israelites had raised up their cries, their afflictions to the Lord, and he heard them. He remembered them, it says. And similarly, God has said in verse 19 of chapter 1 to have remembered Hannah. And now, he would show his great mercy and his power in bringing forth life from death. Redemption. And by intervening miraculously in Hannah's life, he would bring about the salvation of his people. And the exciting thing about these first two chapters of Samuel is that they indicate that the book is not about Samuel or Saul or David. Likewise, chapters 1 and 2 are not foremost about Hannah or Elkanah or their son. Let me ask you this, why do we have several stories of barren women in Scripture? We have the story of Abraham's wife, Sarah. We have Isaac's wife, Rebecca, barren for 20 years after her marriage to Isaac. And then Jacob's wife, Rachel. We have Hannah. And then we also have the stories of Samson's mother and John the Baptist's mother. Barren women seem to often be God's instrument for raising up key figures in the history of redemption. Whether it's Isaac, the promised seed, or Jacob, the saviors and preservers of Israel like Joseph and Samson and Samuel or the forerunner of Jesus, the King of Kings, John the Baptist. And you ask, is this a coincidence? And no. There are no coincidences in Scripture. So why the lesson over and over again of God making a barren woman fruitful We'll turn, if you will, to what may seem like a really obscure passage. It's Isaiah 54. One of those chapters that we forget we ever read. (laughs) Just because sometimes they're so foreign to our ears. Isaiah 54 says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for... More are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth. You will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Like a youthful wife, when you were refused, says your Lord, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then verse 11, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest, not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems, Lay your foundations with sapphires. Oh, make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And finally, verse 17, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. And so in that chapter... Israel is addressed as a barren woman and is assured that her children, the people who have been taken into captivity, will be restored and will multiply. And she is told to sing because she must look with faith to God's future provision. I want you to remember that command to sing. We're going to come back to that later. And whatever shame was brought about by barrenness, Isaiah says, you will not be forgotten. And don't you like that line? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Why does Israel have faith? Because her husband is the God of the universe. And if he brought all things into existence, he can restore her, he can make her fruitful. And for a moment, Israel felt desolate. She felt forsaken. But God loves her with an everlasting love. And so one of the key themes of Scripture is that God brings life from the wilderness. He brings order from chaos and fruitfulness from barrenness. And it is the hope of Israel in the midst of the Exodus that God will bring them to a new garden out of the desert land. And it's also the hope of every Christian who looks to the promised land of heaven in the midst of this desert wilderness of life that we're living right now. And God tells the nation of Israel there in Isaiah 54, you will no longer be barren. You will bear children. And they will be a heritage. You will be fruitful because I am your husband, your Creator. And I brought the created universe into order and being and purpose. And I brought you into order and being and purpose. I brought you from hopelessness in Egypt to a land of milk and honey. And and just like returning from exile to the Garden of Eden, look at all the barren women I have helped in the past. I have helped Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, Manoah's wife, Hannah. These were meant to show you that I am a God who brings fruitfulness from barrenness. What a bunch of examples Israel had by the time Isaiah was speaking of how God had done exactly that. And interestingly, Paul goes a step further than that, and in the book of Galatians, he applies the same lesson to the church. But this time, the children are not physical children, but spiritual children of Israel. Israel had become barren once more in the time of Jesus, but God made her fruitful once more. And He brought forth the church made up of His adopted children, these spiritual descendants of Israel. And so as we go back to 1 Samuel 1, we see in the last eight verses of that first chapter, the blessing of God upon Hannah. He has made her fruitful. He has brought redemption, in a sense, to her and and to the nation. And so she gives birth to Samuel, whose name means asked for. And last week we saw how her faithful husband Elkanah went up yearly to the tabernacle at Shiloh. And in verse 21, he's ready to go again. But this time, Hannah doesn't go with him. And immediately we might wonder, well, is she having second thoughts? Is she avoiding giving Samuel to Eli in the tabernacle? And verse 22 answers that thought because she says to her husband, As soon as the child is winged, I will bring him. I will, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and will dwell there forever. And when we read that, then perhaps we don't have so much wondering about second thoughts, but now we wonder how could a mother part with her child? You feel in a sense like she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And don't those last words, dwell there forever, kind of hang in the air as you read them? And aren't you mothers asking yourselves, I wonder if I could do the same thing? Because this isn't even the tough decision of giving a child to an adoptive family at birth. Hannah is weaning Samuel first, which means she is going to raise, train, and nurture him for several years. Before she brings him to the tabernacle. Maybe as you think about that difficult parting of mother from probably a three year old son, your thoughts turn instead to God and his righteousness. Well, why would God require her to fulfill this vow? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is helpful with regard to that question. And we read that. Months ago where it says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So it sounds like God takes vows very seriously. It is better that you should not vow, he says, than that you should vow and then not follow through. Not pay. That applies to Hannah's vow, but it also applies to your marriage vow. To my ordination vow. Even I would argue to church membership vows. And that's why vows should not be made by those who either are unaware of what they are promising or do not have the ability to carry through on their vow. And so I think the better question is not whether God is righteous to expect Hannah to fulfill her vow, but whether Hannah knew what she was vowing. Was this just a rash vow and now she feels obligated to keep it? Look down at verse 27 as Hannah explains to Eli that she has returned. She says, For this child I prayed, that the, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And so Hannah tells Eli, I'm giving Samuel to the Lord because the Lord gave Samuel to me. And what I see in Hannah is both gratitude and a mature perspective of parenting. You see, none of you parents own your children. Your children have been given to you so that you can give them back to the Lord. You have been charged as stewards to teach your children the ways of God, not just to mold them into your own image and then make them everything that you wished you could have done and been. How many parents have you heard describe how their child is going to be successful or athletic Or influential. And this is extended by saying, he's going to be what I couldn't be. Is that parent looking at his role as a steward? Or is it a parent waiting to live vicariously through his child? Well, the mature Christian parent recognizes that his or her role is to train their children who have been lent to them by the Lord so that they will one day be in the likeness of Christ. Not in their own likeness. And Hannah recognized that from the start. She realized she was not entitled to Samuel. And so in gratitude for God's miraculous gifts, she gives him back. As hard as that language is there in 1 Samuel, it is a reflection of a beautiful spirit. The Lord has lent him to me, even for a short time. And so I lend him back to the Lord. And the question that we have to ask, how many of you are misusing the gifts that God has given you? Do you see your children as your own? Or your money as your own? Or your possessions as your own? Are you willing and ready to give everything back to Him? Should He ask that of you? And what about your life? Are you misusing that greatest gift of all? Did God save you, and ever since you've been living for your pleasures? J.C. Ryle once wrote Grateful love is the true spring of real obedience to Christ. Men will never take up the cross and confess Jesus before the world and live for Him until they feel that they are indebted to Him for their pardon, for their peace, and for their hope. The godly are what they are because they love Him who first loved them and washed them from sin in His own blood. And as hard as it was to part with her son, I believe Hannah did so joyfully that she did so confident that the one who had given her a miraculous gift would know what to do with that gift if she gave it back. And how do I know that? Well, we just look at the next verses in chapter 2. make up what is often called Hannah's song. It says, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble build on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Brahma, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And I want you to get the full picture here. We saw how Hannah did not go up with Elkanah for a few years while she weaned Samuel. This was not because of hesitation, but because of her commitment to fulfilling her vow because the next time that she appeared at the tabernacle, it would be to present Samuel. And verse 24 tells us what that looked like. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three year old bowl, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, the ESV here has a single three year old bowl, but the actual Hebrew says, in a better reading, three bowls. If you have the King James or the New King James, you'll see it that it says three. Scholars for some of the versions have found the Hebrew problematic here. Especially because in verse 25 it says that they slaughtered the bull. Singular and couldn't imagine that Elkanah and Hannah would have brought three bulls to sacrifice. And yet that's a more likely understanding of the Hebrew. And I just mentioned this because according to Leviticus... You brought three-tenths of an ephah of flour for every bowl that was sacrificed. How much of an ephah of flour did they bring? They brought a, f- a full measure. A full ephah of flour. It suggests, at least by that number, that the three bowls is the more likely than a single bowl. But you know what? Let's just say it was only one bowl even one would have been an extraordinary sacrifice. Three would have been like selling your house and bringing the proceeds. Now think about what that generosity implied. I mean, Hannah's already giving up Samuel. To me, that's the the priceless sacrifice. And yet as they come, what I see in the generosity of the sacrifice is not a woman who's dragging her feet while Elkanah says, come on, you know, he's been weaned, you promised. And she's crying every step of the way while Eli pries her fingers from Samuel's shoulders and then she has to be carried away by crying out Samuel Samuel in grief that is not the picture here instead we should match Hannah's actions this magnificent sacrifice with her words in chapter 2 my heart exalts in the Lord her heart is overflowing with joy my horn now this is the interesting part because the next several verses are saying things like my horn. And you need to think this is, this is animal imagery of a, of a bull lifting up its horn in pride and victory. It's what that phrase means. My horn is exalted, is lifted up. I rejoice in your salvation not only is this a joyous Hannah but this is this is a Hannah who's going beyond her situation isn't it Verse 2 my mouth derides my enemies How do we go from gratitude for, for to God over Samuel to my mouth deriding my enemies Well she she says these things because she feels triumphant in the Lord who has answered a prayer not only for a child for this one family in all of Israel, but because what it represents, like I said last week, it represents God bringing fruitfulness once again to bear in Israel. It represents God turning His favor. And when God turns His favor to the people, what's going to happen to their enemies? My mouth derides my enemies. You better watch out. Because God has roused Himself from His holy dwelling, what we read earlier up on the screen. That's what that's about. The proud, the arrogant, the mighty, that's where she goes into the next part. They will be brought down. They have no chance against a God who is walking in favor with His people again. But the weak... The barren, we could bring in 1 Corinthians 1. God lifts up the weak. He lifts up the despised, right? The humble. She says the weak, the barren. It's great that she puts herself in that, that context as well. The hungry, they shall be filled and made fruitful. And was not God turning with favor back to His people worthy of a great sacrifice? That's what this means. And if all the people sleeping outside of Shiloh didn't realize it, all the people going after their own desires, still heading up to the high places, many of them, Hannah knew it. And here she is in Shiloh and on behalf of the people and behalf of her family, she brings forth this magnificent sacrifice. So, friends, does your heart rejoice over these things? Do you find yourself like Hannah, like Paul, boasting in Christ with your horn exalted? Look at a few things that Hannah acknowledges about God. First, in verse 2, she says, There is none holy like the Lord. You serve a holy God in whom there is no shadow of turning, no thought of evil, only pure righteousness. Later during communion, we will sing, Holy, holy, holy. And I want you to think about the words of that song brought out of the book of Isaiah. In verse 2, Hannah adds, There is none besides you. There is no other God but the Lord. As he says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other, a righteous God and Savior, there is no God besides me. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. In verse 2, Hannah also says, there is no rock like our God. And that metaphor is of strength, like a stone mountain who can stand at the base of El Capitan and think of anything but the smallness of man and the mighty hand of the Lord. And God is like that rock. In verse 3, Hannah says, The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The Lord is not just pure power, not just pure righteousness. He is also wisdom and knowledge. And for those who conspire evil, those who take advantage in secret, who lie and cheat and steal to get ahead in the expense of others, just as Hannah says in her song, their conspiracies will come to naught. He weighs every action and is the perfect judge. And so finally, in verse 10, she proclaims the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. He will judge the ends of the earth. And He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. There's the good news, that while all sin is going on, it will be addressed. God knows. God is holy. God is powerful. He is just, but He is also merciful. And He is merciful because He has anointed. One who will save. He has lifted up a king who will reign in righteousness. Are these joy producing truths for you? Or as you read them, do you find yourself stifling a yawn? We should be cheering. Now, I want you to do something that might be technically a little challenging. Okay, it involves three fingers. The first finger is to keep here, the second is to turn to 2 Samuel 22. And the third one, I know I've never asked this of you before, so we will see how it goes. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Three separate passages, but what I want you to see is that Hannah's song is not a song of one voice. It is a song of three voices. All in tight, beautiful counterpoint. Remember how God told Israel to sing? Well, we will see how Hannah, David, and Mary all contributed melody lines to the same song. Second Samuel 22, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, my shield, And the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And we hear those first words of Hannah's song repeated here by David. Phrases like, my rock, and the horn of my salvation, and my Savior leap out. And if you turn to chapter 23, which is a continuation of David's melody because he does... For a moment in the middle, turn things personal as he experienced them in his own life. But then we see in verses 6 and following, David echoes Hannah again and tells how those opposed to God are brought down. For he sings, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken from the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Now go to Luke 1 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Same words as Hannah. This three-part song, all exalting in God their rock, their salvation. They praise Him for overcoming His enemies. They know how God lifts up the weak and the despised. And Mary says in verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped a servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. David says in Second Samuel twenty-two twenty-six, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. You save a humble people. It's all the same song. But when you realize what the song is about, who the song is about, then it all comes into focus. The husband of Isaiah 54 is actually Jesus. The song of Hannah, David, Mary... It's all about Jesus. Yes, Hannah predicted an anointed one. And David acknowledges that he is an anointed one, but the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, and the one to whom Samuel and David point is Jesus. And I asked you earlier, if you rejoice like these three, or at least like Hannah, but I ask now if you rejoice like all three of them, Hannah, David, Mary, and the truths of who God is, His holiness, His uniqueness, His strength, His wisdom. Well, all of these attributes led to an action. And that action was your salvation. Hannah saw it. David saw it. Mary saw it. Do you see it? Hannah's part in the song contains the first direct reference to the Messiah in the Old Testament. At least the term Messiah. The translation, Anointed in English, is Christ in Greek. The 19th century commentator William Blakey wrote At the end of her prayer, Hannah's son seems to give place to a higher son. Jesus, through whom the land would be blessed as no one else could have blessed it, and all hungry and thirsty souls would be guided to that living bread and living water of which whosoever ate and drank should never be hungry or thirsty again. And I hope that you never see these first two chapters of 1 Samuel the same again. Hannah believed No, she knew that the birth of her son meant a new day. You will bring forth your anointed one. David realized that God would lift up the anointed one, the son whom the nations would have to kiss, lest they be broken with a rod of iron. Mary realized that through her son would come the hope of all the world see, Samuel is certainly great as a prophet, priest, and judge, but Jesus Christ would be exalted and power through His death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Hannah speaks of the hungry being filled and the weak being lifted up. So does David. But ultimately, how can God for eternity lift up and save the condemned except that you eat of the living bread? Except that His own Son became poor for us. And the One who knew no sin was made sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And what Hannah saw from far away, obviously in moments Holy Spirit inspired as she is speaking these words, what she saw from far away has come near to us through the coming of Christ, the true anointed One, God's king and it is in his name alone that the feeble find strength and that those who were hungry cease to hunger will you hear his words whoever hears my word and believes me who has sent him has eternal life let's pray Father, we thank you for Hannah and David, Mary. But ultimately, they were preparing a nation for your salvation. And even beyond that, they were simply rejoicing, exulting in the fact that you were bringing redemption and thus bringing judgment upon Your enemies. And Lord, as we look at that, I pray that we do not find ourselves on the side of the enemy. But Lord, that instead, like Hannah and David and Mary, we lift up our hearts, our voices, and praise for what You have brought through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we with boldness have the same kind of joy, the same kind of sacrificial spirit, the same kind of commitment and faith that Hannah displays in the passages we read today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.